Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Lee Chittenden. I'm the director of the Certificate in Election Administration Program at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Uh, the event today is part of a series of webinars brought to you by the Certificate Program. Just a little bit about the Certificate Program before it started. Um, it is an academic program offered at the undergraduate and graduate levels, and we share best practices with current election officials and prepare students for a profession in election administration. Our courses are all taught by prominent leaders in the field. Um, they are accessible online 24 hours a day and designed to be uh, flexible for working professionals. We are currently accepting applications for fall semester until August 15th. So if you have questions or are curious about the program, please email us at ceaprogram.umn.edu. And now it is my pleasure to welcome you to today's event, Voter Identity Verification, Balancing Equity and Access. This webinar is in partnership with the Bipartisan Policy Center. And we are very pleased to have Rachel Ori um, with the Bipartisan Policy Center joining us today and moderating the discussion. Rachel is a policy analyst for the Bipartisan Policy Center's Elections Project. Her research focuses on evidence-based and data-driven reforms that meaningfully improve our elections ecosystem. She recently obtained her Master's of Public Policy and Certificate of Data Science from George Washington University. With that, I'll turn it over to Rachel to frame up the conversation and introduce the rest of our panel. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you. Thank you, Lee, and welcome everyone to today's webinar focused on remote voter identity verification. Now, this topic area isn't anything new. Election officials have been remotely confirming the identity of male voters for decades. Yet the pandemic-inspired transition to male voting last year drew what has traditionally been a behind-the-scenes process into the limelight. All of a sudden, everyone from politicians to the American public was talking about how male voting was talking about male voting administration and signature matching. Now this year, state legislatures around the country have proposed or passed into law changes to the remote voter verification policies. Often these changes make it harder to vote by mail or absentee without meaningfully increasing the security of the process. At the same time, the private industry has made real progress in verifying consumers' identity remotely through the use of high-tech tools. Coupled with the unprecedented focus on election reform, we are seeing play out right now. This moment is a unique opportunity to improve the remote voter verification process in ways that promote, promote both voter access and election security. So joining me today to discuss current trends in remote voter verification policy are two standout election officials from Washington, a vote by mail state that is on the leading edge of election reform. Patty McGuire is auditor of Mason County, Washington. He oversees elections, the recording of documents and motor vehicle licensing and county finance. He was elected county auditor in 2018. Previously, he served as deputy director of the Federal Voting Assistance Program. And prior to that, he served as Oregon Deputy Secretary of State and worked to implement vote by mail statewide. Julie Anderson serves as Pierce County Auditor, where she, where she is responsible for running elections in the second most populous county in Washington state. She was first elected to the post in 2009 uh, and the auditor's office was responsible for elections, licensing and public document recording. She is a nationally certified election administrator and state certified public records officer with an undergraduate degree in liberal arts and a master's degree in criminal justice administration. And with that, let's jump right in. I wanna get started by setting the scene a little bit for any audience members who are new to election administration or voter identity verification. So at a very 10,000 foot level, let's start with Julie. 
what is remote voter identity verification? Um, well, again, to set the stage, I wanna emphasize that in a vote by mail state, well, most states, there's voter verification that happens at the registration, at the point of registration, making sure that the voter is qualified. Um, as, and then when we're receiving ballots, uh, we do a verification again to make sure that the ballot that's been returned is tied to the voter and that we can identify the voter's identity. Um, so all of that has to happen in Washington state without the voter in front of us. Uh, so at the point of registration, they're submitting some pretty traditional data points, the last four digits of a social security or um, the number of their state uh, voter excuse me, their state ID card or driver's license, um, and then an address. And you mix that all together with powerful tools like LexisNexis, Washington State's centralized voter registration system that's called VoteWA, um, USPS or United States Postal Service data. Um, and we can do a lot of uh, powerful verification at the front end registration. When we're receiving the ballot, of course, we're looking at um, the, uh, the barcode and the unique voter ID that is on the outside with the voter's name and address and then their signature because that is the unique thing. Um, and we're comparing that signature on past signatures. Sometimes we'll uh, look at the signatures of other voters in the household if it's skewing towards a mismatch. So at the high level. Thank you, Julie. Uh, and Patty, I'll pass it to you. So how does, you know, how do the needs around remote identity verification vary to the kind of identity verification that happens in person when a voter, for example, shows up at their polling place to vote? As Julie said, you know, what we are doing in, um, in a vote by mail environment is using the signature to match back to the record of the, of of the voter because they're not standing in front of us. Um, and, uh, and the signature serves two purposes. One is that link to the voter registration record, but it's also an oath, a legal oath where the voter is swearing that they haven't voted in this election, they are who they say they are. And, and so you know, if, if they aren't telling the truth, the swearing of the oath becomes the legal mechanism to prosecute them uh, the sort of easiest legal mechanism for, for our local prosecutors to, um, to go after them and prosecute them because they're swearing a false oath and that's against the law. Interesting. And so you both mentioned that policy, right? Signature verification, which is how the majority of states in the United States uh, conduct remote identity verification for male and absentee voters. Uh, but being an election administration, you sometimes hear the adage float around that signature verification is more of an art and a science. Do you agree with this statement or disagree and why? Um, Either. I, I don't, I don't, yeah, I'm not wild about the word art or artful, uh, but I will say that there is a discernment and judgment on behalf of the professional election administrators that are reviewing that. And by the time a signature gets challenged um, for a mismatch or unmatched, it really reaches um, a management level um, scrutiny and involves um, another set of eyes, actually two pairs of eyes. Let's see, how many eyes is that? So there's like, there's like a four eyes in the first pass and there's a different set of four eyes on the second pass and then it starts wrangling up to supervisors and managers. Um, 
yeah, so. Well, I think I think it's important to point out that in Washington State that the people who verify signatures are required to be trained uh, by this Washington State Patrol, um, and it, it's a it's a fairly rigorous. I mean, it's not not terribly long. It's a couple hours, but um, we require it of our staff that does signature verification to go through the training annually, um, and um, and and it you know it, it is. A, as I say, it's a rigorous training and I think really helpful to brush up on your skills uh, because it, you know, it, it, is not, it is not a requirement in Washington law that the signatures be identical. Um, there, are, there are standards set by the Secretary of State's office uh, that there have to be uh, substantial similarities. Uh, and so that, I mean, I think that's sort of where the, the art uh, description comes in is that uh, you know, it is not a complete one-to-one, hundred percent match, really ever, because no two signatures are ever truly identical. And the state and patrol training that Patty referenced, everybody has to go through with that if they're going to do signature verification. And there's an amazing pre-test and post-test as part of that training, and uh, we do it annually. Um, and it's amazing uh, how. Uh, effective the training is when you look at those pre-test, post-tests, and they're not formal tests, they're quizzes, um, but uh, they're extremely effective. And I would say one other thing um, that in Washington, we're looking, we, we want to accept signatures. We're not looking for excuses to reject signatures. So we're in Pierce County, we're always looking for at least three indicators that the signature is the same or belongs to the voter. And that can be slant, pressure, um, uh, loops, all, all of those things. I, I'm pretty sure that the state patrol doesn't want me to say any more than that, or they'd have to cut my tongue out. <laughs> oh, well, let's hope they don't, you know, cut off your signal feed here. Um, let's jump down a little bit more on that training aspect. So it sounds like, you know, Washington state has a really pretty rigorous training program to make sure that the election workers who are verifying signatures know what to look out for, you know, like the, the loops, the pressure, everything that you mentioned. Um, but, you know, it's, pretty well known that elections are underfunded nationwide. And so we've heard experiences from some election officials who have had trouble having the resources to adequately train their staff and end up using um, election workers who might not have had the same level of training that you know, your jurisdictions have had. And so I would just be curious to know for either of you if a lack of resources has ever made it difficult to adequately train your staff to conduct this verification. Um, or if this is something that you've been seeing in, in you know, other states nationwide. I'll jump in here. I think mean, for, for us, you know, I'm, I'm in a small county with three, a three-person election staff. Um, we bring on uh, 10 to six to 15 people, uh, additional staff uh, for each election, depending on um, how, how big it is. Um, I mean, one, one of the wonderful things about COVID, um, if there is a silver lining, is training like this is now offered online. It always used to be in person, uh, and, and that was a challenge for us. Uh, it was, you know, I have a very small travel budget, and um, so my ability to send folks to the state elections conference uh, was really limited. So 
um, those trainings, the state patrol is now doing the trainings online. And so everybody, it, it's easy now. <laughs> you know, in Pierce County, which is significantly larger, uh, we also benefit from that virtual training that this uh, state patrol is now, they've loosened that up and, 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 and gone virtual. But uh, we also take the time, we'll hire in a presidential election, for example, we'll have like 400 extra hire election workers to help support the election. Um, and very few of them are um, assigned signature verification duties. And we actually do it testing in advance in their aptitude before we'll even train them and assign them to that duty. Um, but that's the luxury of having a larger workforce. Um, but we want to make sure that uh, the, the very best are assigned to this that have the aptitude and skills for it in addition to the training. Yeah, thank you, Julie. And, and so you mentioned, right, that you have a, you know, yours is the second most populous county in Washington state. Patty's yours, I think, is the 20th. Um, Julie, yours county was the first and only in Washington to start using automatic signature verification technology to process absentee ballots. Um, could you talk a little bit about your motivation to start using this technology and how it's been working out for you? Sure. Uh, we like to refer to it as automatic signature review um, because we use a ASR as a first pass to get through the bulk of the easiest signatures. So uh, as, as Patty has uh, said, you know, an unsigned ballot envelope is binary. It's either signed or unsigned. And yet we were spending staff time uh, reviewing blank envelopes and, and coding them and stuff when a machine could have clearly done that if it's blank. And then you have other signatures that are just spot on all the time. So working with the Secretary of State's office um, to certify uh, this process and this equipment, excuse me, this software, um, we, we set it at a threshold. So we want to just be looking at the, the easiest and most certain uh, signatures and pass those on. The other ones that are a little iffy uh, go through the traditional process of those, you know, two, two sets of eyeballs, um, reviewing them, etc. So, and it's very, very important to impress upon people that this process is not rejecting ballots. The machine does not reject signatures. Only trained professionals do, and after several sets of review. It has saved us uh, a lot of time and money, and yes, there was investment with license and the software, but given uh, the number of people I just talked about and how large we are, uh, it was a good deal for us, and it's something we're going to continue with. And, I, and I'll also say, you know, whether it's using ASR or going the traditional route, uh, we do regular audits of our signature verification process. Um, so we will randomly select. So setting aside ASR and just traditional signature verification, we'll randomly select a subset of signatures and have managers review them uh, to make sure that's a way of doing a quality control with our workers. Um, and also it's an extra reassurance for our political party observers. Certainly. And Patty, so you have a slightly different experience. You have a, you know, smaller county, don't conduct automatic signature verification. Um, what are some of the considerations that go into, you know, lifting up signature verification for a smaller county? You know, I, I know that sometimes you might not have the same sort of signatures on file as larger counties. 
what are some other considerations at play that with regard to county size? So this is this is an interesting thing because it larger counties in Washington State and and I'm I'm 20th in size out of 39, so pretty much right smack in the middle in terms of size. Uh, larger counties have equipment that scans uh, scans the outer envelope and captures the signature, and so the signature verification that they are doing is image to image. So looking at an on-screen image that's of this of the signature on the envelope to an on-screen image of the signature in the voter registration file. In our case, we don't have a scanner, uh, and so my staff is literally holding up an envelope in their hands with ink, uh, ink on paper, looking at the image on the screen. The interesting thing about that is that counties that have the signature capture store those. Uh, and so over time, you collect multiple signatures for a voter. So, I mean, I, I last, my, my signature in the voter registration files when I got my driver's license, the last time I was in the, D, the Department of Licensing in, in uh, 2014, and so I voted a whole bunch of times since then. And if I was in a big county, all those subsequent images would be stored. In our county, it's that one signature from 2014. So as my signature evolves over time, that's not captured for me in Mason County. If I lived in Pierce County, it would be captured and Julie would be able to match my signature today to, to the signature in the last election and the signature before that and the signature before that. Um, so that's that's really a difference. Uh, the, the, the state auditor is doing a look right now at differences in signature uh, acceptance rates by county. And I think this may be a factor, I mean, we don't know yet, um, but I think this may be a factor that uh, that what is being compared against is is pretty different for those of us in small in small counties. And Patty, I'll say that 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 may change uh, because the signatures that we scan we upload to VOTWA, which is the um, centralized election management and voter registration system uh, operated by the state, uh, and they're running out of room. Uh, so they, they keep threatening to purge those, those historical signatures because it starts to get, those images get pretty seriously heavy when you're talking about 5 million voters in uh, Washington state. So we may lose that advantage or have it trimmed uh, pretty soon. And Patty, let's talk a little bit about, uh, gosh, I, Washington state was number two or three to adopt online voter registration, which means we're really dependent on signatures that are generated at the darned DOL uh, counter. Um, uh, what do you think of those signatures? <laughs> you know, the, the, the quality, I will say the quality of the signatures we get from Department of Licensing, DMV most places, it's DOL here, um, is pretty lousy. Um, it, you know, it is, it is sort of a felt tip flare, old time flare pen um, on, on a keypad. I mean, it, it is not a signature of ink on paper that they are capturing. It is, it is on, a, on a keypad. And, um, you know, I, I wish, uh, I, I hope over time to be able to get uh, a, a sorter scanner machine so I'm able to update my, my signatures. But um, 
I don't have the space for it yet. Well, on that point, I mean, it's interesting you brought up the quality of those signatures because, you know, I don't know about you all, but I don't end up signing my name on paper very often. And when I do, it's not much better than a little scribble. And so as our society moves away from, you know, things like checks and wet signatures to more digital interfaces, or even just, you know, even if you're still collecting them on paper, um, as people have less experience signing in this way, have the quality of signatures you've been receiving decreasing over time? And if so, what problems has this caused from an administrative perspective? So we, we looked at, I, I think this is largely an age issue for us. Uh, we looked at signature mismatches in the 2020 presidential election by age. And uh, the, the signature mismatches is, is a pretty much straight line down starting at the youngest voters to older voters. It tips up a little bit with really old voters. Um, but I mean, the simple fact is young people don't sign things very much. They generally often don't have as well developed a, uh, a signature as somebody my age. Uh, you know, I mean, when I, um, you know, I started out writing checks, I started out every credit card transaction, you had to sign a piece of paper. You know, I signed things a lot um, and I have a pretty stable signature as a result, young people, you know, if they're signing anything, it's a scribble on a on a keypad or on a on a touch screen. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't think this is a a huge problem yet, but it's certainly a developing problem. And I think something that we're thinking about here in Washington State as um, as a looming issue. If if we want if we want to get young people to participate, we sort of need to figure out. Um, how to replace a, an antiquated system that really isn't terribly relevant uh, to them anymore or, or part of their regular lives the way signatures used to be. Interesting. Yeah, it's interesting you refer to it as an antiquated system. Um, well, I think we'll get into that a little bit later, but there's a lot to discuss there. But a little bit more on this point about, you know, signature rejection. You mentioned the, you know, that it's mostly an age issue. I think, you know, we do definitely see that data that young people, I think, have almost a, you know, double the chance, a low chance still, but, you know, almost double the chance of getting their ballot rejected due to signature mismatch. Um, and studies of signature matching in Florida have also found um, similar rates of rejection for BIPOC or voters of color. Um, you know, and so it's, it's, I, I'd be curious to get your thoughts here because some, some, you know, argue that, you know, it's okay to have some, you know, ballots rejected falsely if you have a robust ballot curing program in order to address those discrepancies. Um, so I'd be curious to get both of your thoughts um, on how you ensure that your signature verification system is equitable. Um, maybe talk a little bit about what ballot curing is and how you sort of manage these different concerns of trying to ensure security while also trying to make sure that it's as equitable as possible. Julie, I know you mentioned yesterday the, uh, the, the point about not wanting to create separate classes for voters. I think this would be an interesting conversation here as well. Sure. Um, at, at this point, I think the best that we can do is to be um, uh, neutral um, in the process and have consistent standards, consistent training, um, consistent audits, supervision. And again, uh, the ethic is we're always trying to find a logical, 
factual reasons to approve a signature rather than reject it offhand. So that's a good baseline, but that doesn't get to equity, right? Uh, to get to equity, you have to do something more. And even though this is, um, it, it's fair and it's neutral and it's effective, it, the 20% of the population that either isn't getting the message because they haven't developed a signature or they don't understand for whatever reason um, that we check signatures or what they're checked against, that lands on us, not on the 20% of the people that aren't getting the message or don't understand. Uh, so it's for us to solve. Um, and I think that there's a lot more that we can do uh, regarding um, language translation and interpretation um, and proactive engagement. Because when you're in the moment of an election, even though Washington state has some really good expansive timelines for the length of time for curing ballots and uh, how we send them out 18 days in advance, that's all good for the voter and gives them a good chance. Uh, but when you're in the moment and the clock is ticking, um, chances, you know, I mean, we have a really good cure rate, but not for everybody. So I think proactively engaging communities of interest that are impacted neg negatively uh, by signature verification is the way to go. Outreach in advance um, with lots of translation and interpretation uh, with community guides. So I'll say that. And then another population uh, is voters that are living with disabilities um, who um, have a, are, are challenged not just by our ballots, but specifically by the signature. Washington State is gifted with a, a great online ballot marking tool that, um, that I think is well supported by the disability community, but the signature is something that just can't be done digitally online at this point. And that's what really gives people grief, um, especially people with dexterity and hand uh, and eyesight issues. Um, and that's where we've got to find an alternative. Um, but the alternative has to be made available to everybody in the general population, right? Uh, neither Patty or I want to end up with a list of registered voters who are tagged as handicapped uh, and therefore allowed to have a loophole or an alternative verification process. So whatever we come up with has to be available for them. <laughs> uh, let me just say a, a word about the sort of mechanics of our cure process. So when a signature doesn't match, um, the, the vote war, our voter registration system generates um, a letter with a return postcard for the voter to fill out to give us a new signature. Um, they go out pretty much automatically, they go out rapidly, uh, and the voter then has until the day before certification of the election to return the card with us and give us an updated signature. Uh, it, it is it is generally uh, I mean I, I think the system works reasonably well I, I'm certain that we could improve the language that is used on notifications um, you know there's always there's always room to make instructions better and things like that you know I want to come back to the age thing though because you know particularly for younger voters sending them a notice in the mail um, and ask, expecting them to fill out a postcard and mail it back uh, probably is not the most relevant way to reach them. But 
you know, that's, that's what we have now. And so, you know, I think, again, this is something we have to figure out a better way to do. I know in Colorado that they have a system um, through their statewide texting notification where you can verify your signature uh, online through that system, which is pretty cool. Um, we don't have we don't have a legal um, a, a legal way to do that, but hopefully we'll get there over time. So shout out to Colorado on that. I also want to point out that because um, I think it's. 80% of uh, voter registrations in Washington state come through the DOL, through online registration. Uh, we have started to message to voters that when they're signing, for them to take out their state ID or driver's license and, and say your signature, your voter registration signature in all likelihood is what is on your driver's license. So bear, keep that in mind uh, when you're signing. And we're adding that to our cure letters too. Interesting. And so how do voters normally respond? Do you, you know, do you reach out to cure a, a ballot envelope or do they respond negatively, positively? You know, do you find that interaction? How does that usually go? I, I, I would say we get a mix. We get a small percentage who are mad, um, but thinks that we're up to something, you know, and, um, you know, I, I've gotten calls from people who are yelling that their signature you know, hasn't changed in 50 years and, um, and they're mad, and then I'll go in and look in the system, and you know, they send in an unsigned ballot. Um, or so I mean, a percentage are mad. Another per, a, a larger percentage, I think, are really happy that a we we really are checking every signature, um, and they're they're sort of happy and surprised. And um, so I mean, I think I think it's it is something that we point to as proof that the system works. Um, and so, you know, I, most voters are, I would say, happy and surprised, though a small percentage are pissed. That sounds pretty accurate for the American public. <laughs> um, so we've been kind of skirting around the topic here of, you know, what alternatives to signature verification might be. Um, and so, you know, like we've already established, most states use signature matching to confirm the identity of male voters. Uh, and it's worked quite well. Um, yet this year, we've seen many state legislatures around the country propose or pass into law uh, new remote voter identity verification requirements, such as requiring an ID photocopy, an ID number, or witness or notary signature in order to be able to vote absentee or by mail. Um, what do you make of these changes? Maybe, Julie, I'll pass it to you first. Um, I. Um, I'm glad that Washington isn't struggling with trying to uh, expand absentee voting. I mean, it's, it's baked into us for uh, well over a decade. I think that um, we have proven time and time again that um, fraud is extremely rare in Washington state and in vote by mail environments. So the system works for the vast majority of people and it works well for election administrators. For people who fail the signature check um, and for an upcoming group of young voters who are likely to fail the signature check, I think we need to start 
investigating opt-in alternatives and really leave it to the voter um, to opt in uh, to an alternative to signatures. And we would look to a lot of the technologies that are in the commercial market, um, Rachel, that you well know about and have been investigating so that it's opt-in um, and the voter can use that to, um, in Washington state, like I said, our registration system is uh, a unified statewide system and you can do a lot of self-serve. The voter can self-serve a lot of stuff like generating an online ballot um, to print out and return rather than coming to us for a replacement ballot, et cetera, et cetera, update their address. Um, and some people are a little creeped out that they're able to do so much with their own records. And uh, bolting down an extra layer of security would um, create a barrier for some people, but some people might wanna opt in and add that layer. I'm constantly asked by my personal vendors in banking and social media, if uh, I want to add, um, add uh, two-factor authentication to my account. We could eventually move to that in our voter registration system. The consumers are really used to it and people could add on that extra layer of verifi that verification, but that could also be the same tool that's used as an alternative opt-in to signature verification. So Washington state is placed very, very well, I think for piloting uh, something to solve this problem for 10% of the population. Absolutely. I, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned these, you know, things like two-factor authentication, data verification. Um, these are all things that are quite common in the, in the public sphere now and something that the American public is growing really comfortable with. But, you know, whereas with signature verification, you have young voters who are more likely to get rejected with these new tech-heavy solutions. It's kind of the opposite. So the opt-in provides an interesting opportunity to really balance that you are adding an additional security component but you're still making sure that there's, you know, expansive voter access. And Patty, that's something I want to get your thoughts about. Um, when this issue is sort of talked about in, in politics or, you know, in partisan politics specifically, um, security and access are often framed as an either or. Like either you can have a really expansive, you know, system where you have a lot of voter access um, or you can have a really secure system where it's hard to vote. Um, even, you know, just recently, NPR, PBS NewsHour put out a poll and found that the majority of Americans believe that voter access is more important than rooting out fraud. Do you think it has to be this sort of trade-off or, or is there a way to do both? I mean, I, mean I, don't, I don't see this as a, as a binary choice at all. I mean, it really is a continuum. Is, you know, I mean, as I say, if, if I wanted to have the most secure voting system that I could possibly have here, I'd have every resident, every registry voter in, in Mason County line up in front of my office in alphabetical order um, and have them vote one at a time. Well, you know, obviously that's, we're not gonna do that. Um, and so what, what I think we need to do and what we look for is making the system we have uh, that is open and accessible to all as secure as it can be. And, um, you know, and a huge part of that, as Julie pointed out at the beginning in Washington state is, in, is at the voter registration, at the point of voter registration at the beginning um, is where we uh, verify identity and do all those sorts of things. And then, then 
in each election, we're matching back against that, um, that and, and don't require people to verify their identity, which you know presents huge issues. I used to work at the Federal Voting Assistance Program, and I, um, you know, there were proposals when I was there um, to require absentee voters to include photocopies of their ID um, in with their return ballot. Well, you know, soldiers in Afghanistan don't have access to copy machines. Um, I mean, it's just not part of their lives. Um, so you, all this stuff is a balance, but I think, you know, where we have come down in Washington state is, is to lean heavily at the registration point um, for people to verify themselves and for, and to use systems to verify that people are who they say they are, and then to match against that. Interesting, you mentioned um, voter ID. So that's obviously become a flashpoint um, of, you know, today's election reform discussions. Um, and, you know, some argue that any ID requirement is bad for voting rights, while others argue that the major problem with using an ID, at least during the absentee and mail verification process, is that requiring a photocopy. You know, not only is it hard for, you know, the, the Yokava voters who are overseas, but it's also difficult for, you know, lower income voters or voters just without a printer. You know, I don't have a printer in my apartment and it is difficult sometimes to, would be difficult to provide that sort of identification. Um, but as we, you know, look towards the future, you know, if there was a way to say, scan your ID using your mobile phone, um, do you think that would mitigate some of the concerns? So more broadly, is there a role for ID in the voting process or, or should it be avoided altogether? I mean, I, I, Julie, do you want to jump in here? I'll add on. Patty, go ahead. So, I mean, I think, I think the, again, in Washington state, we rely on registration as the point in which people prove that they are human beings and citizens, they swear an oath that they are citizens. Uh, you know, and, and we are one of the most fraud free states in the country. It happens here, uh, you know, it, it, in, in 2020, I referred to uh, two ballots to um, our, our county prosecutor of people that uh, I believe voted improperly. Uh, interestingly, we caught both of them in the signature check as non-matches uh, and then found out more and, and had the referral to the prosecutor. So, you know, it, in both cases, the system identified the the ballot the, the the ballot envelopes is not matching the voter registration and then you know we, we've got the backstory from the voters um, because you know because part of stealing a ballot here uh, part of stealing somebody's ballot is relying on the fact that the voter doesn't know that there's an election going on which when you have a super high interest election like last November uh, pretty much everybody knew that an election was happening and so. Uh, in these two cases, well, in one of these two cases, the voter came in and said, um, I didn't get my ballot and we had her ballot um, and, um, and it was signed by someone else. Um, and, um, and in another case, we found out that someone had died and we got uh, a couple months 
earlier before the ballots were sent out and we got a, a signed ballot back from the dead voter. Um, and so, but again, the signatures didn't match, they were set aside um, and the process worked. Thanks, and Julie, did you wanna jump in there at all? No, um, no. A very, right. very similar stories to Patty. <laughs> and yes. uh, every single county in Washington state has the same experiences. And um, yeah, the system right. works. Yeah, certainly. Thank you. And then I want to let the audience know we're going to be pivoting here to Q&A very shortly. So if you have any questions pop up, please um, pop them in the chat. We see some coming through and we'd love to be able to bring you into the conversation. Um, I'll just wrap up this segment here with a sort of, you know, broader question, uh, you know, Patty, you mentioned that with the, such a high profile election um, in 2020, it, it was, you know, there was a lot of public attention around this. And obviously it created a problem for that voter who, um, you know, had their ballot taken. Um, and, and as part of that, there was a huge sort of public education campaign that was encouraging voters to submit their ballots early and properly sign their ballot envelope that really helped fend off the fears that we were going to have more ballot rejection for 2020 with this influx of first time male voters. And we ended up pretty much having the opposite. Um, but now as we move into future elections and you know, perhaps go back, we don't quite know what's gonna happen in 2022, 2024, um, but we can't necessarily count on that level of public outreach and public education for every election. Um, so do you have any concerns about sort of trying to reach voters? Say you do change your signature verification system or add in this opt-in component, um, what are your concerns about, you know, voter outreach, voter engagement moving forward? And, and how can we sort of preserve that engagement, preserve voter confidence um, heading into these, these next couple elections? Well, I think we are going to slide back into uh, old habits of voters waiting until the last minute to return on return ballots, even though uh, they're available 18 days in advance, uh, just because I, voters are pretty darn predictable in that way. And they're not um, being scared to death by ginned up stories about um, the postal service undermining the election, et cetera, et cetera. So without those uh, manufactured threats and that sense of urgency, um, I think we're just gonna go right back to um, old behavior. And it doesn't, uh, it, I haven't found public outreach to be very effective telling people return your ballot early. It gives us longer to contact you if there's a problem with the ballot. That message doesn't reach most people, even though we uh, spend some pretty significant cash on social media and uh, PSAs and things like that. I think it's experience, word of mouth, and community leaders um, telling those messages, and that's just the hard work, right? It's like the, the hard-to-reach populations in the census are the same hard-to-reach populations in the electorate, and you need trusted messengers, which are... Um, few and far between, it seems like, um, to be able to educate their peers about uh, ballot curing signatures, what the signatures are being checked against. We do our level best to communicate very, very clearly, and um, but it's got minimal effect. It just seems like over time um, is how to habituate voters to new rules. I, I do think that if we roll out a step in or step up alternative uh, to signature verification that um, our Secretary of State Kim Wyman would 
and, and our state legislature would fund a public outreach campaign um, so that there's nice uniform messages. I mean, I'll, I'll be a little more optimistic than Julie here um, and, and say, you know, one, one of the advantages of vote by mail is we reach out to our voters on a really regular basis. Uh, we send a mail, uh, I mean, I've, I, will have, I will have four elections this year. I had five last year. Um, we send them a lot of mail and we're, gonna, we're, we're now starting to send a voter's pamphlet too. So you know, there, there are a lot of opportunities to reach out to folks. And, um, and I think it, when, when we, I won't, I won't say if, when we get to the point of introducing something that is an alternative to signatures, um, you know, I think it, it will get a lot of press attention. And I think we have, we have the opportunity to let our voters know um, because we mail them stuff all the time. Yeah, absolutely. So we are going to pivot now for the last 10 to 15 minutes or so to some uh, questions from the audience. Uh, we've had some good ones coming in, but definitely uh, continue to submit those if you are here listening. Um, so I wanna get started maybe just with, you know, uh, of a sort of basic one about vote by mail generally. Um, so obviously Washington state has a lot of experience using mail voting. Um, so I have this question from Chris Moen in the audience. How many years does it usually take to establish a solid vote by mail system? Um, they reference that, you know, due to COVID we've had some, you know, jump into this last minute and who are side of kind of those states are sort of grappling with these questions around, you know, remote voter identity verification now. So how long does it normally take to establish this kind of system and, you know, to really get voters comfortable with using these methods? So I was, I was Deputy Secretary of State in Oregon in 2000, which was the first uh, all vote by mail uh, presidential election in U.S. history. Uh, at that point, Oregon had been doing uh, local elections entirely by mail for 20 years. Um, so our voters were completely used to um, getting things in the mail, responding to that, knowing what drop boxes are. Um, and, you know, I, it would scare me as much as I love vote by mail and believe in vote by mail, I think making a rapid transition to it anywhere would be a mistake um, it, it, to, to a full vote by mail system. Um, but I want to, but I want to say that it's not the mechanics that are scary or unknown. It has to do with um, uh, building confidence in the stakeholders. <laughs> I think where we've seen the real backlash in people that had in organizations that had to stand up a, a big absentee uh, voting uh, program was the backlash from lawmakers and from campaigns and candidates, not necessarily from the voters. So the good news is uh, Washington, Oregon, Colorado, uh, other states have already uh, done the work. Uh, the technology, the procedures, the processes are already in place. The vendors that support us are the same vendors that are in your states. Uh, so that is pretty plug and play if you can find the funding and you don't short sheet yourself. But the harder lift is the, um, the lawmakers and the campaigns and candidates. And yeah. I, I would say I would also advise people to step into it, not jump into it. Um, 
and it's just good continuity of operations anyway to um, not put all of your eggs in one basket. So that's why we have vote centers, Colorado, Oregon, we, we have vote centers. We didn't go completely uh, vote by mail. Mm -hmm. We've got those exit ramps. Yeah, and it's interesting, you you know, you bring up the campaigns and candidates, obviously, during the last election, we saw, you know, a lot of misinformation floating around about mail voting. So, you know, the next question from the audience, I think will help clear up one of those misconceptions that came up. Um, we have an attendee who asked, you know, what's to stop someone from, you know, Julie, you had mentioned this process where, you know, voters might be able to generate their ballot at home and print it out and fill it out. Um, what's to stop someone from just printing out 10 ballots and submitting them. Could you just briefly uh, recap? I know we've touched on this a couple of times, but maybe a short sure. explanation. Well, let's go into the way back machine pre-COVID when you and your family would go out to the movie theater and you would probably use Fandango or some other ticketing thing to buy your tickets online instead of standing in front of the line in the movie theater. Well, you know, Fandango or some other movie theater, you could print out 15 tickets and say, I'm going to hand them out to all my friends in the parking lot. We're going to get friend free. But the ticket taker is going to scan the first one and you'll walk in and all your 14 friends are going to be left behind in the parking lot. Uh, so it's the same deal. Yep. Thank you. That's I love that example. I'm going to have to use that from here on out. Um, so we've had, a, I know we've you know, touched on this briefly, but we've had a couple questions come through um, about, uh, again, about the, you know, racial disparity and the rejection um, of ballots. So, you know, could you just, uh, you know, touch a little bit more on, you know, what you might recommend that election officials do either in Washington state or in other states uh, to try and either do that proactive outreach, like, like Julie, like you mentioned, or any other methods to try and mitigate the, you know, potential consequences of, of this uh, higher ballot rejection rate. Maybe Patty, do you want to start? Well, I think we have uh, here in Mason County, our, our largest ethnic minority group is um, Latino, Latina. Um, and the, the simple fact is last names, na names generally among the Latino, Latina community are more fluid than they are for Anglos, um, you know, see uh, Big Poppy, uh, David Ortiz, when he played for the Seattle Mariners, he was David Arias. Um, and when he got traded away, he changed his last name and that was just kind of not a big deal. Um, so Matt, I, I think there is a significant issue with the fluidity of names among people with um, with Hispanic of Hispanic origin uh, that we need to figure out, and I I don't know what the answer is. Um, so, I mean that that to me I think on our end is a training issue um, that if David if David Ortiz signs his ballot I don't know that he's a U.S. citizen but anyway um, if David Ortiz signs his ballot David Arias because. Uh, that that you look at the David and not at the Ortiz and the Arias mm -hmm. to um, to verify his signature. I'd, yeah, I'd like to try some stuff. Um, so right now, when we're doing the um, uh, signature verification, like Patty said, we're looking at a at the digital image of the envelope that was submitted against the digital signatures that we have on file. 
And right now, when we call up those, uh, the workers do see the voter's name and address. Um, it would take some programming, um, but I'd like to see what our results would be if we uh, screened out names and addresses and just did signature to signature. I'd like to test what impact that has on our ability to do verification. And certainly the beauty of ASR, uh, the beauty of yeah, ASR automatic signature uh, review is that that computer is not looking at names or geography. So, it's only the um, it's only the variations in signatures, the most the hardest ones that come before people, and to to phase out or to eliminate the possibility of unconscious bias, I'd like to try screening out names and addresses, and that would be a beautiful pilot. Um, so we're in the process of investigating with our vendor um, if that can be done and our elections team, and we'd like to try it. Um, the other thing I'd like to do is engage the communities and what they think uh, the problems are. And then our Department of Licensing, they're not gonna like to hear this, but I would like to hear them add to their script whenever they're asking the motor voter questions at the time of licensing. I'd like to make sure in the person's primary language that they explain that the signature that they are making and that will be applied to their ID or driver's license is going to be the signature that is going to be used for their voter registration. Understanding that at the beginning would be helpful and having that explained in their primary language, um, extraordinarily helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Julie. And it's, it's great to hear that, you know, you in Washington State generally are, are really making these efforts to um, engage, uh, you know, BIPOC voters and, and as well as translate all of these materials. So I won't go into this now, we're a bit short on time, but we did have a sort of question come up about, um, you know, the translation of the, you know, snail mail curing process in, in Washington. And, and I know that's a, a priority for you getting those in, in as many languages as possible to reach as many voters. So um, I just wanted to wrap up. We only have about five minutes left with maybe a, a a more big picture question from um, Catherine McMullen. She is an elections administrator in Oregon. Um, and she has asked, what are ways that you can reach new voters to help them understand the voting process? Uh, thinking about young voters and voters who are new citizens um, who might not have voting habits established either in their immediate family or peer networks. How do you build trust in the process if a voter isn't successful on their first time? Um, and how do we start to you know, heal these relationships that have perhaps been broken over this last election and, and start to build up voter confidence again as we as we head into the midterms and into the 2024 general. Big I question, think, but. No, I, there's, there's, there's a lot of parts there. Um, I mean, I, the challenge I feel like I face in a rural area with you know, one weekly newspaper and one radio station one local radio station is is just how it, it feels like we are solving this one voter one person at a time. Um, you know, when when people are willing to come in and be observers and see our process, um, the response is universally, "Gee, that's awesome!" I mean, I I didn't know. I had no idea you checked every signature. I had no idea you there were all these systems in place to protect the voter's identity and, and you know, all, all the systems in place. And um, 
I wish I wish I had a better answer than that. Um, but it feels like it's it's so much of this is one at a time. And I would just say um, patience and not dismissing people's concerns. Uh, you know, my team is uh, not allowed to roll their eyes, even if they're talking over the phone, because you can hear the eye rolls over the phone. There's no stupid question when it comes from the public and some of our harshest critics and most unkind skeptics. Um, you've you've got to hear their concerns with respect. Um, and and first of all and foremost, thank them for being engaged and concerned. And that uh, creates a mindset um, that can only help, uh, even if we don't convince people um, about the integrity. Uh, of, of the system. And Patty's right, in-person tours are absolutely the way to go um, and uh, actively engaging political party observers. Um, so it, it's hard, but it's it's gotta be patient and it's gotta start with respect. If there's somebody, and most, most of the misunderstandings are concerned are based on a lack of information or a person's inability to verify the information. Um, and that is on us, not on them. Thank you, Julie. I think patience and you know mutual respect is the perfect way to end this webinar. Um, we have just a teeny bit of time left. I'm going to pass it back to Lee with, uh, here we are, to, to wrap things up. Thank you everyone for joining us and thank you, Patty and Julie. And I'm going to put my email in the chat box because there were lots of questions that we didn't get to, but I'm happy to engage in those. So I'm going to, I'm going to put, I think I can put this in the chat or somebody can put my email in the chat. Let me put it this way. Have the organizers put my email in the chat. <laughs> One more thing I, I forgot to mention is that, uh, you know, we did very briefly allude earlier that, that we have been sort of uh, at the Bipartisan Policy Center, we are in the process of releasing a paper, sort of really going into a lot of these issues. Uh, we're going to be sending that out along with the sort of post-event email, so please keep an eye on it if you're interested uh, in reading a little bit more about remote signature verification policies, as well as how we might be able to sort of modernize them in the future. And thank you. Thanks, everyone, uh, to our great panel, Julie Anderson, Patty McGuire, and Rachel Ari. We really appreciate you um, joining us today. It was a great discussion. And I want to thank the Bipartisan Policy Center again for partnering on this uh, webinar. If you have any comments, questions, please feel free to email us at the CEA program at umn.edu. And thank you so much for joining us. <laughs>